Hello, my name is Harold Furch Scott Roth. I'll be your moderator today. Welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet's continuing series, uh, inviting leading experts uh, from around the world to come speak to us here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, we're very pleased today to have Professor Adam Mossop of George Mason's University School of Law speak with us. Just a brief note, our next session will be May 21st. Uh, when my colleague Rob McDowell will have Anna Eshoo, uh, ranking member of the House Telecommunications Subcommittee. Uh, but today, we're very pleased to have with us Professor Adam Mossoff of George Mason's University School of Law. He'll be speaking about the internet and IP rights, friends or foes. Uh, Professor Mossoff's biography is uh, here on the, uh, the introductory materials. Uh, he um, co-directs He's the co-director of academic programs at George Mason University School of Law and senior scholar at Mason Law's Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property. He's written extensively about intellectual property, uh, and we're very pleased to have him with us today. Professor Mossa. Well, thank you, Harold. And, and um, <clears throat> um, following up on, on, on the comments, can everyone hear me okay? Um, okay, excellent. Um, so, and I'd like to... To thank you and to th and thank the Hudson Institute for inviting me to, to, to talk to you today about uh, the internet and IP rights, um, friends or foes. Um, <clears throat> so the, uh, the policy debates about the internet today typically frame the internet as, as an opposition to IP rights. Um, and this is really rooted in, um, in many ways in the, uh, the birth of the modern internet as we now know it today, which is the World Wide Web, which starts in the early 1990s. And this kind of presented a heyday for utopians on both the left and the right, right? So for libertarian anarchists, they, they saw in the potentiality of the internet a world without government controls, where everyone could just do what they want and could engage in their own ordering of their lives. Um, communitarians and leftists saw this as a world without property, or more specifically, a world without intellectual property. Uh, like patents, copyrights, or trademarks. Um, and, and instead of saying intellectual property is just a mouthful, I'm just going to say IP from, from here on out. And so, uh, so for instance, so John Perry Barlow, a former uh, member of the Grateful Dead and founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, coined the phrase in, the, in, the, in an article in Wired Magazine in uh, 1994, that ideas want to be free, which has come to define the way that people think about the internet. Now, the problem is, is that these sentiments um, not just define the way we think about the internet, um, and as a result, they came to define the social norms of the way people act in, in, uh, on the internet. Um, so for those of you who have any young children, or, um, or if you know any teenagers or people in college, then you know very well that the attitude today is if it's on the internet, it's free. Right? Um, and, that, and in fact, very much uh, the belief is that the internet works largely because it's free of control of IP rights. Now, the 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 issue with this the, this public discourse is that it doesn't actually reflect the reality of what has actually happened on the internet. Um, the internet has, in fact, evolved and developed on the basis of IP rights that made the investments in new technology and the creation of new business models to deploy those te that technology. Um, and to make it available to consumers in everybody's lives available. I mean, and this is true even for kind of the basic technology, the internet, and, um, and for uh, mobile computing. 
um, in smartphones and tablets was brought to us by patents, such as the very famous and fundamental patent on CDMA technology. You do not, you do not know what CDMA is, but you actually use it every day. It's, it's what we now call 3G and 4G. Um, <clears throat> which, uh, and of course, it was the patents also owned on mobile computing by NTP, and then eventually later BlackBerry and Apple and others, which has made possible our smartphones and tablets, Wi-Fi, 3G, and all of the things that we now take for granted as making possible our lives today. So the result here is that, in a sense, the policy and legal debates about the internet, um, and with respect to the high-tech industry more generally, have become, frankly, bipolar, or even worse, schizophrenic. Right. So. Um, people are using the very technological products and services made possible by IP rights. They're using their smartphones, tablets, Wi-Fi, 4G, etc., to write blog posts, to write op-eds for online newspapers, or perhaps to argue on Facebook that this technology proves that IP rights are in fact unnecessary and retard innovation and make the very innovation that they're using <laughs> uh, impossible. Um, so now, in this kind of brief lunchtime talk, and, and, uh, um, and I will talk for just a few moments just to kind of frame it, and then Harold and I will engage in some back and forth, uh, and then we'll eventually involve the, uh, the, uh, the audience. I can't respond to every single one of the confusions and misunderstandings about IP rights in our high-tech world today. Um, I mean, I no more could do that than, than in a brief lunchtime talk solve the answer to life, the universe, and everything, although for those of you who are well-read enough, you know that the answer is 42, correct? So, um, and I see that the older people, like Mountain Mice, uh, are smiling, and younger people are looking at me as if, uh, what the heck did I just say? Um, and I just say, Google Douglas Adams. Um, so, I've set myself a more limited goal in my opening remarks, and then we can expand upon it in the, in the discussion with Harold and with the audience. So, I'm not going to give an abstract or theoretical defense of IP rights. That's not what's needed now. Instead, what's needed is to address the basic misunderstandings and confusions about actually the way in which IP has, in fact, worked with technology and made possible the technology that we now embrace and use on the internet. In fact, IP rights covered the core technological features of the internet as we now know it today. Um, many people don't realize this. And as I mentioned, it made possible the investments and the business models that have brought all of these amazing new innovative technologies and creative works into our hands and into the, our use every day. Um, and so I'll just kind of talk about some of these examples from the area of patents, copyrights, and trade, trademarks, and then, uh, and then make some broader points about what this, what this means about property rights, and then we can have a more kind of general discussion. All right. So what... So patents, a lot of people think of patents as blockades innovation, especially in today's debates where people complain about massive amounts of patent litigation and alleged and, and suits from what people refer to as, uh, as a more of a rhetorical epithet than anything as patent trolls. But what people don't realize actually is that the foundation of the entire internet rests on patented innovation. Um, and, and I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. For those of you who know, who know the technology internet, the, tech, the basic technology internet is what we call a packet switching technology. Where, so when you send an email, your email does not go out as an entire email. It's broken up into little different, it's broken up into components, bits of information, and those bits are then copied and transmitted through different routes of transmission on the internet. Um, and then they're recollected back at central servers and then 
and then downloaded to your to your email client. I mean, and this was and, and, and this is to ensure efficiency, fast communication, because you you inherently will lose some bits. So some of the bits will get just lost in the transmission process, or a, a, one of the pipelines may be down. And so this is what makes possible kind of the efficient and uh, and uh, uh, fast and almost error-free transmission of information that we now take for granted in the internet. This was invented by Donald Watts Davies, packet switching technology. And what a lot of people do not realize is that he got a patent out of this. It's patent number 4,799,258. Um, <clears throat> and so, in fact, the entire basic technology of how we actually transmit information on the internet is, in fact, was, or was, in fact, at one time covered by a patent and deployed as patented innovation among computer programmers and the companies that, that, that developed program, programs and software on the basis of it. Uh, moreover, the inventors of the specific packet switching technology that we actually use on the internet, it's referred to as the TCP IP protocol, um, they themselves obtained additional patent protection for innovations based upon their TCP IP protocol. So here I'm referring to, of course, the, fa the famous uh, programmers Robert Kahn and Vinton Cerf. Uh, who in fact obtained a packet switching uh, 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 a patent on a packet switching technology that was known in the late 80s and early 90s as a NoBot, which is basically a program for retrieving information um, on, the, on the internet. And also, what a lot of people don't realize, um, and I always like to uh, emphasize this, um, especially since the company that owns this patent doesn't often like to talk about this, but that Google search algorithm was originally a patented invention. Um, so Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google, when they were graduate students at Stanford and they created the, the search algorithm that becomes the basis of the Google company that we now know and the basis of the <laughs> verb to Google, um, actually obtained a patent on it. Patent number 6,574,628. And in fact, their obtaining of this patent played a very important role. It brought um, not just in their ability to obtain venture capital funding, but it brought significant revenues back to Stanford, which was actually the owner of the patent since they were the graduate students of Stanford at that time. Stanford has made mil hundreds of millions of dollars from this patent, for which it's then been able to take that money and reinvest it back into <coughs> basic research and educational services that it provides at its university, all because of patents. Now, these are just a few examples and fairly high-profile examples. And what's really unfortunate is I'm fairly confident that all of you did not know any of these. This is completely unknown in today's public policy discussions and debates about the internet. Um, and, and because these, these debates today, because of the, the, the general framing that the internet is free of control, are largely based upon non-patent-based examples of innovation, right? So when people talk about, well, there are, are apps on our smartphones, we don't need patents on that. In fact, those are very easy to create and they're very easy to deploy in the marketplace through either Google's Google market or through the, or, or through the uh, iTunes market. Um, by the way, those are still secured by IP rights, which I'll mention in just a few moments. So yes, not patents, but another type of IP right. Um, and also, uh, a lot of the discussion about the internet uh, focuses upon tech companies whose business models don't rely on patents. Um, so for instance, Google, uh, who I mentioned actually started with a patent. In fact, does not rely on, pat on patents anymore to secure its search algorithm. And it, it relies upon another IP right, trade secrets. So it keeps its search algorithm secret um, as it's developed extensively over the years. And furthermore, its business model is predicated not upon 
the trade secret as such, but upon the advertising revenue that it obtains from people using its, 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 its search algorithm. So in, in convincing millions of people, or I should say hundreds of millions of people to use its, its, its search web page, it can then sell advertising spots to people. Uh, Facebook similarly relies upon an advertising model, and that's why it doesn't need to charge us money to use its service. What a lot of people don't realize is we are Facebook's product. <laughs> we are their commercial product that they are selling to their advertisers. Same with Google. Um, so those are, those are when, when users are the product, um, your business model is not going to be patents. It's going to be something else. And, and yet, that's just one type of business model, though. That's just one side of the innovation equation. What a lot of people don't realize is technology creation, and particularly even software creation, is a spectrum. Um, yes, apps are one side of the spectrum. Apps are very easy to create. App developers love to talk about the fact that it just takes a couple days for sometimes, or even sometimes a couple hours for them to write an app, um, like Flappy Bird, and, and to post it on, 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 the, on the various services that, that make them available to users. And so there's very, they're very easy to create and almost no commercial costs in bringing them into the hands of consumers. But on the other side of the spectrum, there, there are technologies that require massive research and development costs involving the, the, the drafting of hundreds of millions, if not billions of lines of code for the programs that we use in our, in our, in our computers and on the internet on a day-to-day -day basis and similarly involve tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of development in the commercial mechanisms to make possible the deployment of these new technologies in the marketplace. Um, and in fact, many inventors and companies thus do rely upon patents for their business models um, because they, this is the only way that they could in fact recoup the extensive R&D investments that they make both in creating the technology as well as the extensive ex-ante investments that they need to make in the commercial mechanisms and, and creating these supply chains, the agreements with, this, with suppliers, creating the, the inter intermediate agreements with distributors and things of that sort. And here I'm talking about, for instance, the inventions of operating systems, both at Microsoft and Apple, the inventions of word processing programs like Word for Windows and others. Just to give you one example of some of the expenses that this entails, um, we don't know the actual R&D costs behind, uh, behind software because the companies keep that secret for, for, for legitimate reasons. It's, you know, they don't want to reveal how much it costs for them to do this because they're that that reveals their price structure and things of that, that they don't want to show. But it's been estimated that Windows Vista cost Microsoft more than $9 billion to create before it sold a single copy. And as many of you are probably very well aware, it didn't sell many copies. Okay? Um, and so that gives you a sense of, what, of the risk that is entailed in creating new products and new technological products. Um, the Apple iPhone. Um, which, you know, we, which started the whole revolution in smartphones and, and tablets today with the, with the follow-on um, follow um, uh, Apple's development tablet technology. That was five to six years from the initial prototype that was conceived in the lab at Apple to, this, to their first sale in the marketplace. Because it is, it is an extensive commercial development as well as additional technological development to take something from the lab and turn that into something that is a viable commercial product that can be used by people who are not experts in the technology and they can easily purchase it. So Apple had to, for instance, create the supply chain necessary. 
there's very famous stories of how Steve Jobs uh, was very influential in getting other companies to come up with innovative investments, for instance, in what's called Gorilla Glass, uh, which is a brand new glass that was used on the iPhone and is used in other smartphones. Um, they had to come up with the commercial <coughs> mechanism of how to sell it. Um, in the, in the mid-1990s, if I had said to you, there's going to be Apple stores in, in malls, you would have all looked at me like I was crazy. I said, Apple? With stores and malls? They're too cool for that, right? This is, this is, this is the hip, trendy, cool company. They're not going to open up in a mall, a store, and yet they're in almost every mall today, Apple Store, with their Genius Bars, right? Where you can go for tech, service, tech support service. This was a new commercial mechanism that they had to come up with because they invented a new type of product, a smartphone, that they, wanted, that they needed to figure out how they were going to sell that to consumers. And so they had to thus create and invest the extensive amounts of resources and the commercial mechanisms necessary to even take that new idea on a smartphone and make it something that could be viable in the marketplace. Moreover, studies repeatedly show that venture capitalists rely heavily upon patents as indicators of both the, the legitimacy and innovativeness of new technology as well as for, for market exclusivity in making decisions as, as to whether to invest in startup companies. Now this is very, very important because the driver of our high-tech economy and in particularly of the, econ of, of the internet has been by startup companies. Most of the companies that we now think of when we think of the internet and the high-tech industry, Facebook, Google, eBay, Amazon.com, did not exist 20 years ago. 20 years ago, what were the companies that we thought of as defining the high-tech market? Microsoft, Apple, Dell, right? Those companies are still in existence, but they're not as prominent as they once were. My, Apple is because it helped bring a, a new innovative revolution in technology, but the others are not. And by the way, 20 years before that, going back to the 1970s, early 1970s, there was no Microsoft, there was no Apple, there was no Dell. The big companies at that time, Data General Corp. Anyone here remember Data General Corp? I do, because I'm old enough. I see a few hands. Those of us with starting to have slight, some slight gray in our hair. <laughs> um, and, <clears throat> and other companies, like Digital Equipment Corporation. You may be asking, who's Digital Equipment Corporation? Well, it's the company whose founder famously said in 1977, quote, I see no reason why anyone would want to have a computer in their home, end quote. That, my friends, is why there's no Digital Equipment Company anymore. It was a multi-billion dollar company when he said that. By the mid, late 1980s, it had, gone, it, had gone, it had gone bankrupt and had been replaced by the new startups, Microsoft, Apple, and other companies. That's, so that's just in the context of patents. What about copyrights? Well, the primary way that copyrights have been deployed in the, in the, mark, in, in the internet is because the internet faced a real challenge to copyrighted creative works um, because of the ease of which it, it is to copy a creative work on the internet, and not just copy, but make a perfect copy that can then be multiplied thousands, millions of times over with the click of a button and transferred to, several, uh, to millions of other people. So the challenge for copyright on the internet wasn't the continued protection of copyright as such, but the, but the creation of, of technological mechanisms to better secure and prevent the unlawful copying of creative works in the digital format. 
and thus Congress stepped in in 1999 and enacted a law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA. It has lots of different uh, um, provisions to it. One of them is that it insulates websites and other, and, um, and other uh, internet service providers who serve as, as an intermediary for other people to post things. It insulates them from liability through what's known as the notice and takedown system. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this or have heard about it. Um, uh, it's, you know, it, it, every website has to, it provides mechanisms for this. If you go to almost every website where material is posted, there's a notice, the DMCA, uh, there's a DMCA link where you click and there's a, you typically a form for submitting if you're a copyright owner and you think a copyrighted work has been posted there. They, they, they do that because the DMCA provided them a safe harbor from liability if they provide this ability for which copyright owners could alert an intermediary like a website that a copyrighted work had been posted. But more importantly, what the, what, the, what, the, um, what the DMCA created was a new type of liability for people who, who hack digital protection systems that are created to secure copyrighted works. Right? So, the, so the digital protection systems, whether they're known as digital rights management or other types of, or other types of, of firewalls and things of that sort, that make secure websites that are providing content that needs to be created and distri distributed to consumers in the internet. The DMCA was heavily attacked when it was enacted by scholars and others. Uh, Larry Lessig, the very famous intellectual property internet scholar, wrote an article uh, a couple years after the DMCA was enacted titled, The Death of Cyberspace. Uh, he was claiming this is the, this is the DMCA heralds the end of the internet <laughs> uh, because this is, this is the, this, where, what was once was free and, and open. Ideas were transferred. It's now you have control and stamping down and structure, and, and this is the end of it. Of course, we now know that he was entirely true with his prediction that the internet would be killed right? Uh, 15 years later. Um, but it's very important to recognize something. The enactment of the DMCA correlates directly with the development of iTunes. And that's not an accident. Um, because the music uh, labels, the publishers of music, the people who make the investments in artists and the ma commercial mechanisms to make music available, of course were understandably very worried about making their resources available on the internet given the ease by which their copyrighted songs could be copied. And so they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to go on the internet. Because this, this was the death of their industry as they saw it and the business models that they had created over the previous decades that did not, that were predicated upon the more, the, the more difficult ability to copy songs. Well, Steve Jobs was able to convince the music labels to make available through his iTunes service their, their, their songs. And the reason why he was able to convince them was because he said, we will create very, very strong, strict protections that will prevent the unauthorized duplication of your copyrighted works by the users of our service or by other internet users. And, and as far as I'm aware to this day, iTunes has never been hacked, has never been un accessed in any unauthorized way and its content distributed on the internet, which shows you the strength of which he was able to create those works. And the ability of Steve Jobs to make that promise to music labels was because of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. He was willing to invest in that type of protection, and, he was, and the music labels were willing to uh, trust him when he, when he was able to explain to them the type of protections that he would make uh, and create for their, for their music through the iTunes system. 
because of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, because it, it secured through, through, through prohibitions and liabilities that, uh, the, the, uh, that the creation of these types of technological mechanisms. And by the way, this is not just mere theory. I'm not theorizing from this. Um, the music labels and, um, and, and other people in the industry are very open and explicit that the DMCA was fundamental was fundamental to their decision and their willingness to de start to deploy their, their assets, their intellectual property assets on the internet. Um, that it made possible them to feel confident in, in, in the security of their property rights in going onto the internet and engaging in commercial exploitation of their works, which has thus made possible this amazing explosive growth in digital, in digital media both songs and movies and other, and, and other digital cultural works now, which have all been brought to us and, and were largely predicated upon Steve Jobs' initial creation of the iTunes uh, music service. Lastly, just my last example. I know this is, uh, I, I, I need to do this because this is, no one know, is aware of these issues. They talk about the internet and this is just kind of, this is what's been happening underneath the discourse about the internet and our public, uh, and our, and our public debates. Trademark. A lot of people don't realize the very fundamental role that trademark plays. I'm sure all of you have heard of open source software. Um, and, and open source software is often characterized as being free of IP. Well, what they mean is being free of IP is free of patents and copyrights. But it is certainly not free of intellectual property. Open source software, in particular, the very famous uh, general public license, the GPL, it's referred to as GPL, uses trademark to control how it is distributed and used. Thus, for instance, Red Hat, a very famous company which has created a business model predicated upon open source software, um, protects its goodwill and the value in Red Hat. You all know Red Hat. I'm certain you do. Um, and it has a very, it's very famous and well known, and deservedly so, that there's value in its name and in its, in its company. And, the, and it, it, does, it secures that through trademark. So in the GPL, that it distributes, for instance, you can freely copy and the, the, the license, but it requires that you remove all references to Red Hat when, if and when you do so. Because it does not want its name and its goodwill undermined by someone engaging, uh, writing either a bad code or perhaps engaging in other nefarious behaviors that it would then become associated with. So it's exploiting the protections of trademark to protect the goodwill in its company. And then last, but certainly not least, apps. As I said, it's a, it's a claim today that apps are not secured by intellectual property. And that's true if you mean patents or copyrights. Um, but it's certainly not true when it comes to trademark. Um, now, the, this is very important. And it shows you how the intellectual, that what, when we talk about securing new technological values and new services, right, people tend to conflate intellectual property with patents and, and or copyright. But what they don't realize is that there's actually an IP system. And, it's, and there's different types of intellectual property rights, trademarks, patents, copyrights, trade secrets. And the reason why we have these different type of rights is because there's different types of values that are created and deployed as commercial assets in the marketplace. And given the nature of the different types of values, whether it's a technological invention that's, that involves massive R&D and the need for market exclusivity um, and the commercial investments have to be made, 
or whether it's a creative work or whether it's a, a, a name that represents goodwill, the value in goodwill like Nike, Coke, um, you have different types of legal protections. And this isn't a surprise. If the property rights system writ large, right? we have different types of property rights. You have property rights in air, in spectrum, in land, in personal goods like chairs and, and, and tables. And the, le the particular legal protections for all of those different types of property are different because you have different type, air is not the same thing as land. So the protections are going to be different. Well, what app developers quickly discovered was that given their low cost of development and their low costs of distributing these in the marketplace, they didn't need patents or copyrights. What they really need is trademark. Because if your app becomes very, very famous, you want to make money off of that. And the way you're going to make money is you're going to, you're going to control how the name of that app is used. And you all know this because of the very famous app known as Angry Birds. Now, Angry Birds is a great example where the creator of Angry Birds, whose name escapes me at the moment, famously declared when his app was started to be sold, I don't need IP. IP is irrelevant to what I'm doing. I'm never going to use IP. Um, you will now find many trademark lawsuits by Angry Birds <laughs> against unauthorized uh, uses, uses of its of the Angry Birds names and the various and the various Angry Bird pictures of the, the particular types of birds and whatnot that are sold in the marketplace, because in fact he does use IP, just not patents and copyrights. He control he he wants to protect the goodwill created in that particular game and in the particular services. And it's why, by the way, there's tons of secondary products and services now related to Angry Birds. Right? You can buy Angry Bird stuffed toys. There's Angry Bird board games. There's Angry Bird plastic toys and pillows and shirts and all sorts of things. For those of you who have children, you completely know, know this. It's inescapable. Um, and that has all been made possible, and that value has all been created through the, uh, through the intellectual property right known as trademark that has been deployed by the owner of the Angry Birds game. So in sum, what do all, what do all of these examples represent? And um, so what are, what are we getting at? Well, the broader point here to remember is that intellectual property rights, the phrase intellectual property is not synonymous with any particular type of intellectual property right. So, the, the, so intellectual property is a broader category of different types of protections. And more importantly, those different types of protections, whether you're talking about patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets, don't dictate any one particular type of business or model or market arrangement. What intellectual property rights do is the same thing that all property rights do. They provide for what economists call private ordering. Now, private ordering is when individuals in the marketplace or through companies use their property rights to develop whatever new commercial mechanisms they can innovatively create in order to bring products and services to market. So private ordering examples are the very creation in the 19th century, for instance, of the corporation as a mechanism for bringing commercial products and services to, into the hands of consumers in a very efficient way. That's an example of private ordering. Other examples of private ordering, the creation of iTunes, the creation of the app markets that have been created by Google and Apple, um, <clears throat> the creation of, the, of all of the different types of, of contractual arrangements between the telecommunication service providers and the high-tech companies making the products, Verizon and um, and T-Mobile and the smartphones that use their services over, uh, uh, to, for people to communicate. 
and the example I referred to earlier, Apple stores, is a great example of private ordering. Steve Jobs and his, and his, and his software engineers had created a, an incredible new product, the iPhone, in the lab at Apple. And they had to come up with a new commercial way of getting this into the hands of consumers in an efficient and as cost-effective way as possible. And their answer to that was, we are going into the retail business. And that is a massive decision that involves millions of dollars in investment in creating, the, in renting the spaces, and coming up with the designs and logos, logos, hiring the staff, creating the distribution mechanisms, the advertising, to hold the, 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 supply, the supply chains between the wholesalers and the final people who are running the stores, and everything else in between. And that is all example of private ordering. That is all private contracts that have been entered into in the marketplace in the innovation, innovative creation of new commercial mechanisms. And there's other examples. Private ordering also entails competition, like the competition between Apple and Google now on, uh, with respect to their smartphones, which, by the way, is a, is a business model competition. It's not just a competition over patented products. In fact, the patent dispute between Apple and Google is a proxy fight really for what is at root a business model fight. It's a fight between the proprietary system of iPhone, which is a completely closed proprietary system, 100% owned by Apple, and the open source system of Android, which relies upon trademark and other types of IP rights to facilitate the creation of new types of values in the, in the smartphone market. And last but not least, the big, the big thing that we're talking about today, the internet. And the high-tech industry more generally is one of the most dynamic, vibrant industries in history. Never before in history have we had such incredibly fast product and service cycles. New products are brought to consumers every couple months. Right? Every month or two, there's a new launch of a new phone, whether it's by Google, whether it's by Samsung, whether it's by Apple. We have falling prices, incredibly fast falling prices explosive economic growth, and a dynamic evolution of platforms and business models in this market. And yet, people are talking about the fact that our patent system is broken, that IP rights are somehow stymieing innovation and undermining the very, the very tools that they're using now and they've taken for granted in their everyday lives to make these very complaints. Um, <clears throat> so in sum, the IP system is a friend to the internet, not a foe. It's been central to making the internet what it is today in the same way that it has been central to making the high-tech industry what it is today. It has secured the new values, created an innovative technology, and it has secured the new business models and commercial mechanisms that have been created to deploy those new values into the hands of consumers. It is it has worked at the level of hardware, at the level of software, and at the level of services. And this has all been brought to us by patents, copyrights, trademarks, and trade secrets. So, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to lead off with a few questions here, and then we'll um, turn it over to the audience. Um, Professor Mossoff, you make a very compelling case about the uh, uh, flexibility of uh, intellectual property uh, under different circumstances. Um, and, and 
some of the limitations of intellectual property are also decided by the courts, and we've had some recent cases that I think uh, may help illustrate some of the points of your talk. Um, one is a court case that uh, was heard by the Supreme Court about a month ago, Alice Corporation, mm -hmm. uh, which may go to uh, helping us understand the limits or not the limits of patent protection for software and other things mm -hmm. that are heavily used in the internet. Could you tell us a little bit about that case and how you see it going? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Um, in fact, I was, at or I was at the oral argument. I attended the oral argument of Alice Corp v. CLS Bank. Um, and I've actually, and I, uh, I did a, a quote, a teleform as it's called, which is um, an online, a kind of a, um, a, a, a presentation, a conference call over a conference bridge that you can listen to as an MP3. Um, so the case of Alice Corp v. Sales Bank involves the question of whether computer software, or what's referred to as computer implemented, um, uh, computer implemented technology, is a patentable invention, deserving of protection under the patent system. So it's a question about actually the, the predicate question. Is, has, is this actually an invention that will then be assessed for whether it can be protected in the patent system? Because whether something is a patentable invention or not still does not mean that it gets patented. You still have to prove that it's new, that it's useful, that it's what's called non-obvious, and, and then you have to fully disclose it in your, in your patent application so that others can read your patent and then innovatively design around, it's called, make new products that don't infringe, can compete with it, and use it once it falls off patent. Those are, so those four requirements, novelty has to be new, useful, non-obvious, and, and fully disclosed, those are called the patentability requirements. But the question in Alice Corp is, before you even get to those requirements, is software actually an invention? So does it even have the right to access the patent system? Now, software actually has been, um, been, been patented following um, uh, various court decisions going back to the, uh, to the uh, uh, early 1980s. Um, and it has been an incredibly controversial move by the courts, which is why the Supreme Court eventually granted cert by this, uh, granted cert in this case and is deciding this issue. Um, and it's an incredibly important issue. Um, it's an incredibly important issue because in the same way that I mentioned that there's a lot of misunderstanding about the internet and its relationship with IP rights, there's a lot of misunderstanding about software. Again, a lot of people think of software as something very easy to do. Um, if, if, if anyone has heard Judge Posner talk about software, he, you know, he often says, oh, it's simple to come up with the computer programming, there's no R&D involved, it's, it's very easy to do this, um, because he has in his mind Angry Birds. <laughs> um, he doesn't have in his mind, and he clearly has never spoken with anyone at Microsoft or Apple, how much it actually ta involves to create an operating system like iOS, like OS X at, uh, at, at Apple, or, or even Windows 8. Um, the, um, and so you have a lot of the exact same type of dynamics that people claim about the pharmaceutical industry and why you, of course, have to have patents in the pharmaceutical industry. Because in the pharmaceutical industry, as people often hear, and it's true, there's massive hundreds of millions of dollars of upfront investment in coming up with the drug, even though it's easy to make the drug after that. And they have to be able to recoup that investment in selling their, the drug in the marketplace to make a profit and to continue to pay for more investment. Well, well, it's not a surprise that you actually have the exact same dynamics for software companies. Um, and so the industry 
the software industry, which is a brand new industry, which came into existence in the 1980s as a self-standing industry as a result of the personal computer revolution, um, really it's not a surprise or a shock that that industry arose just at the same time that the courts were stepping forward and saying, yes, we, can't, we will secure your products under, the, under patent. Um, because that's what they needed in order to create business models around the deployment of operating systems. In fact, um, there were conferences held in the 1980s at, by tech conferences where there were whole panels that were dedicated to whether companies like Microsoft could even exist or, or would exist in 10 or 15 years. We, we've lost the, the perspective of how, how the radical innovation that's represented by Microsoft. Microsoft was the very first company of its kind. It was a company that purely made software and nothing else to run on a multitude of different types of computers that had never been done before. And there was, and, I, and I'm not kidding you, there's whole, there, were, there were whole conference panels at tech conferences where they were saying, is this a feasible business model? Will this, you know, will Microsoft still be in existence 10, 10 years from now or even five years from now? Um, in fact, I, I mentioned this among other topics in, a brief, in an essay that I wrote um, that's available at uh, the Center for Protection of Intellectual Property's website, which is cpip.gmu.edu. And the essay, it's, it's, it's called a policy brief. It's called A Brief History of Software and of Software Patents and Why They're Valid. And I talk about both the technological evolution of software in the 70s and 80s, con which was concomitant with the business model evolution of the software industry, and why this shows you that patents actually are a valid way of protecting this type of technological innovation. Um, in very many ways, um, software is the exact same type of technological innovation that we saw in the 21st century that you had with industrial innovation in the 19th century. Um, and I know it's a common thing to say today that software is just math. Um, and that is a claim that is both proves too much and too little. Um, too much in the sense that Everything is math at the end of the day. In fact, physicists love to say math is the language of the universe, right? Um, you can reduce every invention down to ma a mathematical equation if you wanted to. Um, it proves too little because at the end of the day, it is entirely false that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is the same thing as word for Windows. A word processing program where you write your next book or article or you write an email or a letter is not 2 plus 2 equals 4. That is a very valuable, concrete, real technological innovation. And in, very, in a very real sense, a software, an, an invention of the software that creates a word processing program is the late 20th, early 21st century equivalent of the invention of the mechanical typewriter in the 19th century, which was, which was an innovation over the quill. And because they, they both performed this exact same mechanical and technological functions, it was, it was without a doubt that typewriters were secured in the patent system in the 19th century. Ty typewriter was patented. And word processing programs and other types of new, novel, useful programs that create those, create those new type of technological values in the 21st century should, just, should be protected just as well. So I very much hope that the Supreme Court sees past the rhetoric and it sees past the way that software is talked about today and actually recognizes that the innovation that we have with respect to software, yes, it's a new type of innovation. 
It's, no one noticed, saw it before, but that's exactly what our patent system is for. Our patent system is to protect that new innovation. No one had ever seen a typewriter before until the 1860s. No one had ever seen a sewing machine, a real functioning sewing machine until the, until the 1850s, um, and other types of me mechanical innovations. Uh, a Supreme Court case uh, that was heard just last week, uh, Aereo, uh, yeah. sort of tests the boundaries of uh, copyright protection and how do you see that case playing out and, and what, uh, what does that mean for uh, the future of copyright protection? Um, so the area of case involves, um, it's a very complex case. Um, not complex because of the technology. The technology is actually very easy. Complex case because it's complex because of the law. Um, the technology in area involves a small little um, antenna. Um, combined with some software that encoded into it. It's about the size of your thumbnail um, that you can use to pick up retransmissions of, of copyrighted broadcasts. And the reason why this is a, this is a copyright issue is because um, there is an extensive amount, uh, there is an extent, there, there, A, there is a, what's it called in the copyright, a public performance right that is secured to copyright owners um, under the Copyright Act. And B, there is an extensive regulatory system that has been created around broadcast, uh, the broadcast of copyrighted content through cable and in, in other types of digital transmissions of, of, uh, of, of information. And so, it's a, so what Aereo discovered was basically they created a technical, they, uh, they, they was a loop, effectively a, uh, a loophole in the law by using a very regressive technological step back. So they said, well, the retransmission right and the public performance rights as construed by the courts are all predicated upon having a single, single distribution point. Um, and so what we're going to do is come up with these little antenna that will be individually will, 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 re, will, will rebroadcast the, uh, the signal. So it's not reduced down to a single distribution point. And the problem here isn't what, that this couldn't be potentially extended, that, that this isn't a copyright violation, which I think at root it clearly is. And so that's, so that's what they're wrestling with. What they're wrestling with is that it doesn't technically fall under the existing statutory framework of, of the regulations for, for cable and, retrans, and, the, and broadcast retransmissions. And it's very hard, to, and, it, and it doesn't match up perfectly with, how you, or with the court interpretations of the public performance right. So, Aereo is really a problem because of copyright law, not because of the underlying technology or the protection as such. And the reason why it's a problem with copyright law is because, interestingly enough, we took a very different approach with copyright than we did with patents historically. So historically, what Congress did with respect to patents is they, brought, they, they enacted very broadly framed statutes. Um, so um, statutes where the, you know, the provisions are a couple sentences at most. And they left it very much to the courts to apply these broadly framed words. So for instance, the patent statute under whether, uh, what counts as a patentable invention, it says if you come up with a new machine, process, a composition of matter, list another category, um, you can get an invention. Well, composition of matter, what does that mean? Well, the court said, well, clearly a pharmaceutical molecule is a composition of matter. 
so that's patentable. But that had to be a court decision in the early 20th century. Um, in copyright, what Congress did instead was Congress has, en has, has enacted very, very, very detailed statutory provisions addressing very specific ways in which creative works are deployed in the marketplace. Um, and so they've created these extensive regu regulatory type regimes with respect to, as I'm sure, and I know I'm certain you're aware of these things because in, in, your, in your center here you live in, right, with respect to uh, uh, digital transmission, with respect to cable transmission, with respect to satellite transmission, with respect to libraries, and these are, and these these provisions go on for pages, and they set forth rate regulations and all sorts of things, and the problem is Congress can't foresee how technology evolves necessarily. Inventors don't foresee how technology is going to evolve and how and, and how and even more importantly how commerce is going to evolve, and so we end up with these very complicated statutes that end up being more restrictive on the evolution of the technology and, um, and the creative works and how they're deployed in the marketplace than you have in the patent system. Um, I'm, I mean, you never know how the Supreme Court's going to decide. Um, and if anyone ever tells you, I know how the court's going to rule in this, don't trust that person anymore. <laughs> it's just it's very hard to read the tea leaves. Um, and uh, you know, um, I, I, I signed on to an amicus brief in Aereo saying that this is a this is a this is a copyright violation and you know Aereo should 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 be found liable under the statute. But I recognize too that it's 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 it it is on its face a tough question, and it should be because, um, you know, if they don't find it to be a, a copyright violation, what what you're promoting is in fact regressive technology. I mean, so what Aereo did was not technological innovation. They went back to old technology, <laughs> uh, expensive technology. And, and, and exploited that. And so what you're going to be there incentivizing if they don't find Aereo liable is people you know, looking at regressive type of technologies in order to try to find statutory loopholes that exist in this kind of very complex statutory framework that we have now for copyright. I wasn't there, but the press reports on the Supreme Court oral argument refer to uh, discussion among the justices uh, about consequences for other areas, and particularly for the uh, internet cloud. Yeah. Uh, I, I frankly was a little surprised by that discussion. It seemed that wasn't the issue in front of them, yet they're, they're sort of weighing uh, unintended consequences here. Could you describe, it, it wasn't even obvious to me how any of this, how area affected the cloud, but yeah. perhaps you may have some insight into that. No, I mean, I'm, I'm largely in agreement with you on this point, um, in the sense that um, uh, the, the cloud point was largely raised as a, uh, as a as a as an argument later, as a way to try to justify area. <laughs> um, so it's it, it was it was kind of a well, for lack of a better phrase, in my in my perspective, it's an ad hoc, you know, or post hoc rationalization to try to justify this um, this the the this. Um, this, uh, this, uh, this, um, what one, what, what the judge, what, what, what the federal judge in the Second Circuit referred to as area system is a Rube Goldberg contraption, um, solely designed to get around the copyright statutes, um, and so yeah, I, it's completely unclear how cloud computing is implicated in in, in this decision, 
And I think that's only been raised because I think that they recognize that the system is hard to justify in its own terms. And so they're trying to grasp at any, any straws that they can to try to try to convince nine justices who don't necessarily understand technology very well <laughs> um, that, uh, that this is something that, you know, you could lose, you, you could lose Dropbox, <laughs> uh, you know, if, uh, if, you, if you rule against Aereo. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's really an issue in the case. Copyrights, historically and by statute, have geographic limitations. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges with copyright law on the internet is the internet uh, often doesn't really have geographic boundaries or very easily yes. enforced geographic boundaries. Um, and uh, the U.S. at various international conferences has tried to come up with uh, sort of agreements, but it's, it's very difficult. Uh, yes. Consumers can, without a lot of difficulty, get around them. How, how do you see uh, yeah. jurisdictional boundaries uh, on, with copyright law working on the Internet and, and yeah. where, where we have problems with them? It's not just a problem with copyright. I mean, it's a problem with all intellectual property law because it's rooted in in statute and or court decisions of a particular of a of a particular government is inherently domestic law. So the patent law, copyright law, trademark law of the United States is just applies within the United States borders and doesn't apply to France or Britain. And this isn't a new problem. Um, in fact, um, the whole reason why patents and copyrights were put into the Constitution. Um, and, and so, for those who don't know, the, the authorization of Congress to enact the patent statutes and the copyright statutes is in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, which is sec uh, Article 1, Section 8 is the section that, that, that delegates the powers to Congress, and, and Clause 8 is the, uh, is the section that subsection that delegates the power to Congress to enact patent and copyright statutes. And in fact, the first Congress, it was one of the very first statutes that they enacted was the Copyright Act of 1790 and the Patent Act of 1790. Um, and as an aside, by the way, it's also the, the Patent and Copyright Act, or copyright, uh, the Copyright and Patent Clause is the only provision in the, in the Constitution proper, so the 1787 Constitution, so three Bill of Rights, where, the, where you'll find the word right. Because it says it, it secures to an, uh, authors and inventors the exclusive right in their writings and mm -hmm. discoveries. Um, and, uh, and it was put into the Constitution because states were enacting different patent and, and copyright um, statutes, and books were being sold in lots of different states, and inventions were being transferred even in the early 18th century between different states and sold in different states. And, these, and so it was recognized that, that to have effective, proper security, legal security for these properties, these very valuable property rights, they need national protection. And, and then as you got to the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution and the explosion of commercial growth in, around the world, it was quickly realized that intellectual property rights aren't just national rights, they're international rights. And so a sewing machine that is invented in the United States um, you know, is sold in Europe. And in fact, Singer Sewing Machine Company was one of the very first multinational, U.S.-based multinational corporations because in the 1860s it was selling more sewing machines in Europe than it was in the United States at that time. Um, and so there was, at that point, even in the 19th century, a push for international agreements to har harmonize intellectual property rights between the different countries. 
Um, and so we have, for instance, the Berne Convention, which begins in the ninth, which begins in the in the 19th century, which is relates directly to copyright, and 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 that begins a whole series of of international agreements um, leading up to the 1990s with TRIPS, the trade related uh, trade related aspects of intellectual property rights agreement, um, and uh, cre and eventually creation of, of what's known as WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization at the UN. Um, to help harmonize intellectual property rights across the board in the internet, and, and it's it's really um, s uh, um, serendipitous that we that the countries had already been moving in that direction of international harmonization when the internet came into existence as we now know it today in the 1990s. As you know, the internet existed before the 1990s, but what is invented in 1993 is the World Wide Web, which is a particular type of of, of programming that we, you know, websites of, gra of hypertext links and, and, and images and whatnot that we, that we now use to access and, and, and experience the internet. Um, because, um, because you're right, the internet immediately created all of these questions about jurisdiction. And it wasn't just in the copyright context. So, I mean, in my internet law class that I teach, you know, I teach these cases in the 1990s involving, for instance, defamation. So if I post a defamatory Comment about someone, and and I live in New York, New York City, and my my ISP is based in the state of New York, but I'm defaming someone in Texas. Well, where did the defamation occur, and and do I have to be sued in New York, or do I have to be sued in Texas? And these were and these were questions that had to be addressed and were and had to be resolved by the courts. And so, um, and it's an, and this is an ongoing issue. It will never go away because people are always finding new and interesting ways to interact across jurisdictional boundaries, and um, and uh, and it and it, con and it poses a constant additional complexity and great additional issues that have to be resolved. One of the things I love about being a law professor and a lawyer is that uh, you know it's a, it's always new exciting issues that come up. Well, I could go on all day with questions, but let me not monopolize the conversation uh, and turn this over to our audience. Uh, Please identify yourself, uh, and also for our online viewers, of which we have a great many, uh, you can submit your questions via Twitter uh, at, at hashtag Hudson Institute. Is that right? Where? At Hudson Institute. At Hudson Institute. Okay. Um, so, uh, gentleman here in the back. Hi, my name is Radcliffe Lewis. I'm with Intellexay. Um, I'd like to thank you for convincing me that the IP laws are actually adverse to innovation. <laughs> um, to illustrate the point, um, my simple question, and I, I know I'm not, you know, just trying to make it simple. If I use all Apple systems and I create a movie and then I distribute it in a system that is anti-Apple and uses absolutely no Apple systems whatsoever at all. How much would I have to pay Apple in order for them not to come after me for proprietary rights if I make a million bucks? And the follow-up to that, just and I'm just looking at this just to make sure I get clear. Um, how much would I, am I the only one? If, if there is a way to do that, or if I do that, would they look at me and say, well, you're not a member of our group, of our crony. Therefore, he can do it, or he can do it, but you can't do it. And the, the question goes not just for Apple, 
have identified Apple, Microsoft, Sony, Lucasfilm, Star Wars, Star Trek, and Adobe being in that clan. So as an individual artist, as a practice, you come to me with Adobe and say, you want me to do something using Adobe software? I tell you, no. I won't even touch it. I'll go to gym. Because I am not going to go through that nonsense. Now, we studied for that. We have the question. Yes. We have the question. Yeah, yeah. Let's yes. get the answer. Okay. All right. um, as, a, as, a, as a general point, um, I, th I think there's some confusions about the, 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 in, in, the, in, in the nature of the hypothetical that you, uh, scenario that you propose. Yeah. So um, as, a, as a preliminary point, by the way, you can't go to jail for violating patents. Um, there's no criminal enforcement of, of, of patents at all, zero. And there is a criminal provision for copyright, but it's enforced very, very rarely. Um, and, and in fact, it's enforced against um, a syndicate counterfeiters almost entirely. Um, and so the, um, so, but to more fundamentally, um, I, there is no, there, you know, you say, how much could Apple demand from me? In fact, I don't even know if they would want to or if they need to because I'd have to understand, I, based upon your question, it was unclear how you're violating their IP rights. IP rights are not a blockade. And this is, and this is how a lot of people think of them. IP rights are a facilitator in the same way that property rights are a facilitator. They make possible Apple to make available to you as a creator the very products and services that you want to use to create your works. And, and same with Adobe. Um, and yes, does that, do they impose some limitations on, on, on those uses of their work? Yes, for the same reason that people dictate how their property will be used in all contexts. Right? But we can't say to someone who, is, we, imagine the implication of, as, of, for a society that if we said, if you come up with an, the next great innovative technology that other people say they need in order to be creative, you lose all your rights in it because they need it. Would Apple then invest the tons and hundreds of millions of dollars necessary to create the very technology that you claim you want to use? Would Adobe create the next version of its, of its software? Probably not. In fact, I wouldn't even say probably. They wouldn't. The, and so this is exactly one of the issues that the intellectual property system get, uh, is about. It's not about the technology we have now. It's about fostering and creating the new technology and making it possible for that new technology that is created in a lab and is not usable by you as a consumer into actual usable product in the marketplace. And those mechanisms and those types of products don't come into existence without the exclusive rights over use and disposition that property owners historically have had over all of the types of values that they've created. Um, and in fact, the types, of, the types of scenarios that you're talking about are not unique to IP. You know, and with respect to land, I teach property. And almost all of, you know, and there were questions about, well, if I walk across your property, um, is that, you know, am I committing trespass? Well, you know, you once gave me permission, or do, perhaps you sold me an easement. And now an easement is a right of way. And actually, actually, it's a property right that layers on top of another property right. But it's not a property right to possess the land. And I can't build a house on an easement. So if, and in fact, if I start using the easement in a, in, a, in a more expansive way, if my easement was for walking and I start driving a car, I can be held liable for violating the property rights that were granted to me. So we actually, even in land, which a lot of people think of as very easy and clear, 
there are actually hundreds, or if not thousands, of overlapping rights and and, 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 and claims of uses of the different values that can come out of that particular uh, asset. And what, the, and what makes it possible for people to have those overlapping rights and the explosive growth and economic value that's created through those assets is the property rights themselves. Because those are the transaction facilitators that make it possible. Uh, the way I put it to my students, it's, 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 it's a little blunt and it's simplistic, is that Property is the subject matter of contracts. You will, can't have contracts, you can't have an agreements until you first have some type of property, whether legally secured or informally recognized um, between the parties to the contract. The next uh, question. Yes, <clears throat> my name is Pat Kurovsky from the Voice and Noise Foundation. Uh, in these days, there's a lot of discussion of inequality, especially after this Piketty Capital book. Uh, one of the, those who can be identified as plutocrats have often arisen from those who have had patents, intellectual properties, and all that. And you can see it more and more every day. Where, where is it in the law? Who are working on sort of limiting uh, how much these patents how much this intellectual property could be exploited. Is there anything in that term? Because obviously we all defend the existence of them, mm -hmm. but we don't want to be taken to the cleaners either. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yes and in fact, uh, many of the recent Supreme Court cases um, that Harold mentioned, um, and in fact, just to give you a sense, the Supreme Court has granted more, is hearing more cases just in patent law this year than it has since the 19th century. Um, I mean, it's incredible the re-engagement, and not just in patents. That's just patents, but also in copyright and other, in trademark and other areas. Um, those cases almost all involve the question of what are the appropriate limits and definition and, and, and boundaries of the rights and defining the scope of those rights. And those are and 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 these are difficult issues. They're difficult questions because you're involving the you you're, you involve your what you, what what you're having to do is navigate in a in a in a cultural and economic context. Different people's creations of different types of values, going back to the first question, and how those different types of values can be interrelated with each other in, in the context in which equal, you have equal protection for all rights. Um, it's a very, very complex issue. It's why, it's why we have lawyers. It's why we have you know, law professors who focus on this full time, because these are, these are the complex issues that have to be addressed and ultimately addressed in order to have the kind of the innovation economy that we have today. Um, I will note, uh, as a general um, a point, uh, you know, when you started to say there's an extensive amount of inequality, um, you know, there, the, the studies that have been done on the relationship between IP systems and innovation um, have actually shown that um, protection of IP correlates with stronger, with much increased um, international investment in, company, in countries. So you, you, you actually have a pot, you have a, you, you, if you have IP protections for, for patents and copyrights and other types of creations, um, you, get m you, you get a much greater positive inflow of capital into a country. And, 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 and if you're a developing country, that's exactly what you want and need. Um, which is one of the reasons why WIPO actually promotes IP rights in, um, in the developing world. I'm going to take two more questions, the lady in the back and then Mr. Comstock. Okay. Um, my name is Freeman. I'm, uh, I'm a writer, mm -hmm. mostly of college textbooks, mm -hmm. which 30 years ago sold quite well and today virtually don't sell at all. 
um, which I think modern technology has something to do with. Uh, I have two conflicting impulses as a writer and a researcher, and I would like to describe them and have you tell me if there's any kind of model under copyright that could reconcile those two conflicting impulses. One, as a writer, I would like to be able to make some money off my books, which I know are used far more extensively than I ever get paid for. Um, on the other hand, my impulse as a researcher is to be able to take advantage of this marvelous technology to be able to go, on, go online and read any, anyone else's work that would be useful to my research mm -hmm. without having to go to the trouble of buying the book from Amazon or going to the Library of Congress and sitting in that cold refrigerator yeah. reading it. Um, and these two impulses, the, the wanting to do research, uh, use other people's yes. work for research, not copy it, just research, but not wanting other people to use my work extensively without my permission, yes. conflict. Yes. And current copyright law doesn't address either one of them. Do you have any models for how to resolve this conflict? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question, and it's, and it's, and it's endemic in fact, by the all people who do research. You know, in fact, academics, we all face that same conflict. I want to write, I I want to write and, and, and have recognition and acknowledgement for my writing and have my copyrights respected, but I want to do all this amazing research to make to help possible to do, to make, do my writing. I would actually um, suggest that the copyright system actually is what makes possible um, the resolution of that, of that tension. Because what the copyright system does is by creating at core a property right in the creation of the work, you can then transfer to other people, like publishers um, or other market intermediaries, um, and thus embrace the division of labor in a advanced um, commercial economy. Um, that work is then made available and distributed, and is and is made and is and is accessible. Um, and this is, in fact, exactly what has happened. Um, in fact, um, I actually did a a, um, a very in-depth research project last year on scholarly publishers um, and their embrace of, of the internet and digital publishing and their, and their innovative creation of new distribution mechanisms for getting research out to, the, to very people who, who are their consumers, the, the researchers and academics and others who want to access it. Um, I, um, and, it's a, and it was an eye-opening project. I, hadn't have any, I didn't know anything about it. I, so I went to all the scholarly publishers like Reed Elsevier and others and, I, and, and some of the independently run journals like New England Journal of Medicine and I, and I, just in, and I interviewed them about, well, what have you done? What were your investments? What, were, you know, what, what, what type of mechanisms did you create? And what I found was hundreds of millions of dollars of investments in digital publication and distribution uh, platforms. Um, Tens of tens of millions of dollars in investments in the, in trying to create the technologies that actually make it possible for researchers to do their work. So they created, for instance, a whole hall, example of private ordering out of whole cloth amongst themselves. They recognize the problem of interlinking of research. So you cite to an article. Um, now the internet makes it awesome to be able to track down sites cita citations. So they, and so they wanted to embrace that. Well, it takes a lot of money to come up with the code for, doing, for creating the hypertext links and the cross links and, and then encoding that and all the different websites and everything. And so they all contributed and created a, an organization called CrossRap, which invested in and created the technology which makes those types of HTML cross-linking between academic articles in the STEM area available. Um, and there's other types of examples of massive investment, which redounds back to the, our benefit because that makes it possible for us to do our, our research. So I do a lot of historical research. You may pick, 
picked up on that from my references to the 19th century. And you know, so it's great that I don't have to go to the Library of Congress or the National Archives anymore. I can sit at my computer and look at all of the, these newspapers, which are text searchable from you know, the 1820s and 30s, Morris's invention of the telegraph and the invention and Colt's invention of the firearm and things of that sort. Um, and so that has all been made possible because of the copyright uh, has incentivizes the, the creators of those websites to make the investments to make them available. And for, people, and for companies that don't want to charge the users, they come up with other alternative business models like advertising or other types of mechanisms for funding that type of research of, the, of, of that technology and uh, in, in bringing those products to market. Last question, Earl Comstock, second row here. Thank you. Earl Comstock, I'm an attorney with Eckert Siemens. Uh, I found your presentation wonderful and fascinating. And what I wanted to ask you was, you know, as a professor, and I'm glad to hear you say you, you're looking at history, you mentioned that the court is spending more time on patent and copyright now than they have for certainly decades. Uh, it seems to me that really what you're illustrating here is that the basic principles of law that have been developed over the centuries are essentially the same and are being applied again and again. And what, what we're facing right now is simply a, a sort of new inflection point in technology. But it seems that we're, at the end of the day, coming back to uh, the same principles that were yeah. adopted, say, at the turn of the, of the 18th century with steam yeah. and, and other telegraph and other innovations. And I'm yeah. just curious on your thoughts on that. Are, are we really seeing something truly new and novel and different in the internet? Or are we simply seeing a new application of old principles? Um, that's a great question. In fact, I, so I teach a course called Internet Law, and, um, and which changes every year. <laughs> I've been teaching it for 10 years, and it's completely different than the course I started teaching it uh, 10 or 11 years ago. And, um, um, and that's actually the theme of my course, because otherwise, it, otherwise the class has nothing to unite it. It's a hodgepodge of, of copyright, contract, net neutrality, regulations from the FCC, and, you know, antitrust, antitrust issues. And, what unites all of these things? And so what I came up with as a justification for teaching this course, because some people think this course shouldn't even be taught, is that what the course actually teaches is how the legal system responds to massive technological, economic, and social changes. Um, and you know, we tend to lose, we, you know, we tend to not to have historical perspective because we live in the moment. Um, so we tend to think everything's different today. But if you step back for just a second, you realize everything is different throughout all of history at that moment from what came before it. And the, and the, and the types of problems that were faced, for instance, in the 19th century from the Industrial Revolution, you know, which involved you know, mass creation of factories, mass production of facilities, explosion in population growth and economic involvement, creation of corporations. And by the way, all of this followed from the inventions of the cotton gin, the mechanized reaper, the, the, uh, the repeating firearm, the sewing machine, um, the invention of, of interchangeable uh, machine-tooled parts, the Amer um, which was called the American system of manufacturing, um, the invention of the typewriter, the invention of the light bulb, the telephone. By the way, all of these were patented technologies <laughs> and were brought to market through the patent system. Um, these involve radical, radical challenges to how we conceive of legal relationships between people, social relationships between uh, people, economic relationships, the railroad. Um, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm just finishing up a massive research project on Morse's invention of the telegraph, which led to, by the way, massive litigation 
um, and um, and you know, and he licenses technology and all the same issues that we now talk about today. Um, you know, and it was taught, it was mentioned at the time the telegraph and annihilates space and time. It was a very common phrase because for the first time in human history ever, communication was now the speed of communication was no longer the same as the speed of transportation. For all of human history, the speed of communication was limited by how fast you could travel by boat or horseback. And for the first time in human history, starting with, uh, with, with, uh, with uh, Samuel Morse's first uh, public demonstrations of the telegraph in 1838, people could now communicate over vast distances. And that radically changed business operations, commercial operations, way wars were fought. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, and yes, so it's exactly true. I mean, Every new era brings with it incredible challenges to the legal system, to our social, social norms, and how we because we're, we have new vistas of opportunities opened up to us and new opportunities for conflicts. And, um, and what you find again and again and again is the constant theme is the courts and Congress repeatedly return back to kind of basic core principles. Are new values being created and deployed in the marketplace? Well, then we should secure those through the exclusive rights that are, fall under property rights. Are new types of agreements being entered into? Then those are contracts. Are people harming each other through ways that they didn't necessarily agree to interact with? That's torts. And so again and again and again, you find the courts returning back to these same principles. And the internet and the digital revolution more generally, starting in the 1980s and 90s, really presented this, a very uh, similar type of massive challenge to our legal and, uh, and economic system that we, that, that we had faced in the 19th century. And for a while, there was you know, a lot of questions about how are we going to address these things. But unsurprisingly, over the past 10, 15 years, what we found, as you, as you mentioned, is the courts just returned back to these kind of same core principles that found, formed the foundation of every well-functioning society and in particular, a flourishing economy and society, which is stable protection of property rights and new, and, and new values that are being created, the security of, 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 of business relationships through contracts, and the respecting of people's personal liberties through torts and through their, and through their bodily rights. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I, what I see in the internet today is, yes, new ways that we're interacting today. Um, a lot of old ways, though, that are the same. For instance, people talk about all these new and user lawsuits, for instance, oh, mom and pop stores are being sued. That never happened before. That's not true, actually. Uh, Charles Goodyear, who invented vulcanized rubber in the 1840s, he never manufactured. He only licensed, and his, and, and his licensees engaged in massive litigation campaigns against what we now call end users, in particular dentists. Um, thousands of dentists were, were sued for infringing his patents by some of his licensees. And in fact, one of the main culprits of these lawsuits, it was only brought to an end when a dentist shot the main lawyer who was bringing these lawsuits. <laughs> so um, let's not hope that we return back to that type of way that we interact. But, um, but what, you know, one of the things that you, 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 you discover, um, and I, I'm a tech geek. I love technology. It's why I teach internet law. It's why I got intellectual property. Um, but one of the things you discover, the more and more you, you Embrace that you learn, you read the histories that it really is true. It's a cliche that all things old are new again. Um, I mean, the, the, the way in which it, 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 it gets played out is somewhat new, but at core, it ends up being the same issues. Yeah. And with that, uh, please join me in thanking Professor Marcel. Well, thank you. Thank you.